hope that you do. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. We still have a couple of a couple of chapters to go in Second Samuel, but when we finish, I, I think um, uh, after some prayer, uh, I think we'll, we'll we'll break from the Old Testament for a time, and we'll go look at the Book of Luke uh, for a series, and then we'll come back to the Old Testament. But uh, but f- so you can look forward to to that hopefully. But in Second Samuel chapter fifteen, Second Samuel chapter fifteen is where we'll be, and I will tell you. We are going to read the entire uh, chapter, which is 37 verses. And the reason I, the reason I say that to you is um, because um, I know that, uh, um, that uh, for some of you, uh, you're not physically able to stand for that whole time. So I am going to ask, though, that if you are physically able to stand, uh, please uh, go ahead and do so. And let's read together the entire chapter of 2 Samuel, chapter 15, 2 Samuel chapter 15 and I pray we would hear the word of the Lord that's given to us this morning and it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared uh, prepared chariots and horses for himself and 50 men to run before him and Absalom rose early and stood beside the way of the gate and it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment then Absalom called to him and said of what city are you and he said your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel and Absalom said to him see your, matter, your matters are good and right, but there is no man uh, representing the king to hear you. Absalom said, moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which has any suit or cause might come to me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came near to him to, to bow before him, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all, the, to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, I pray you, let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow which, uh, while I abode in Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I shall serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. And, but Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, that is their innocence, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilite, and David's counselor from from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said to all of his servants that, that were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for we shall, not, we shall not escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do what, whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. And the king went forth and all of his household after him. And the king left Uh, He left uh, ten women which were concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth and the people after him. 
and stayed in a place that was far off. And all of his servants passed on beside him. And all the uh, Cherethites and all the Peleothites and all the uh, Gittites, 600 men which came after him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then said the king to Ittai, the Gittite, Why go you with, also with us? Return to your place and abide with your king, or abide with the king, for you are a stranger and also an exile. Whereas you shall... Whereas you came but yesterday, should I this day make you go up and down with us, seeing I go where I may return, or I may return you and take back your brethren, mercy and truth be with you. And Ittai answered the king, and he said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether in life or death, even there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go and pass over. And Ittai the Gittite passed over and all of his men and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people passed over. And the king also himself passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And Zadok also and all the Levites were with him bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God and Abiathar went up while until all the people had done passing out of the city. And the king said to Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he thus says, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. And the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return into the city in peace, and your two sons with you, uh, uh, Ahimeaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will tarry in the plain of the wilderness until there come word from you to certify me or to inform me. Zadok, therefore, and, and Abiathar carried the ark of God again to Jerusalem, and they, carried, they tarried there, and David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up and had his head covered And he went barefoot, and all the people that were with him covered every man his head, and they went up, weeping as they went. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshipped God, behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him with with his coat rent, and earth upon his head, to whom David said, If you pass on with me, then you shall be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant thus far, so will I now also be your servant, then may you for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And have you not there with you Zadok and Abiathar the priests? Therefore it shall be that whatsoever you shall hear out of the king's house, you shall tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Himeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything that you can hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father. We thank you that you are the God who faithfully preserved your seed through your servant David, even though at this time we have seen read where um, Absalom uh, sought to usurp and to overthrow King David. 
God, we see your sovereign hand over all of this, and we praise you for it. We praise you because this was, even this was for your glory. So help us to learn this morning, to receive from your hand, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. It always amazed me as a child that I could throw whether a large stone or a small stone into a pond or a river or, or whatever. And it was amazing that even the smallest of pebbles would go plop. And from there, as you watched, there was a wake, a small wake, but still a wake that was created. And it rippled out. If it was on a, a still pond, you could, throw the, you could throw the pebble or the rock into the pond. And you could see as those ripples continued to expand and expand and expand and expand. And if it was the conditions were just right... You could watch while it expanded across the lake. It's an amazing reality. Um, and why do I tell you that? Well, it's amazing because, truthfully, every action has a consequence. Uh, and like those pebbles or those rocks that we throw into ponds or lakes or whatever else, there are wakes, that are, there are ripples that ripple out from there. And unfortunately, the consequences of our choices are not always as clear to us, right? Because truthfully, we, we still struggle with our sin. We still struggle with the reality of, of, of being, while even those of us in Christ, we still struggle with, with sin, right? Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 7, and we know that there is a struggle that we have, and yet we cannot deny the existence that actions do have consequences, um, we can tell ourselves, right, when, when, when we're doing wrong that it will be okay or it will turn out all right and we ought not to worry. Um, we, you know, but in, in reality, we see that actions, every action, good and bad, have consequences to them that are, that are attached to them, right? And this is the reality. I bring this up because this is David's reality at this point in 2 Samuel chapter 15. David's actions, or rather David's inaction up until this point, has led him to this point. David um, committed uh, um, uh, committed a, um, a crime by murdering Uriah and Bathsheba and and and, and uh, assaulting Bathsheba. Uh, we see that there were uh, committing adultery with her, and there, there were there, there were consequences from that. But that led to the rise of Amnon. Did it not? Amnon raped his, his stepsister's half-sister Tamar. Uh, David did nothing. A Absalom murders Amnon. David does nothing. David, Absalom goes into exile. David does nothing. David, uh, Absalom comes back from exile um, based upon Joab's plan and everything. And David does nothing. Absalom burns uh, 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 the fields uh, uh, to, get, uh, to get the attention uh, of Joab. And uh, David does nothing. And then as a result, uh, he is brought, his son is brought before him, and David does nothing. And as David does nothing, the more David does nothing, the more we realize and we recognize that his inactions are going and have caused and will cause not only what we see here, but even the death of his son Absalom, and he will pay with one more son, as we'll see in a couple of, a couple of, uh, of weeks. David, David's reign, though, was preceded, right, uh, by ten years of chaos. God brings David to the throne. God blesses the nation of Israel. God blesses David. David then, for many years, 
blesses, uh, David is honoring the Lord, and God leads Israel into this golden age, this golden age of expansion, that even though um, that, that during that time, and even during Solomon's reign later, we'll see what would be called and referred to as the golden age of the nation of Israel. And we'll see that David reigned as a total of uh, 40 years, but his last year, his last year, Right, David now at 70 years old, this, this reign is going to be filled because David for 10 years has refused to do righteousness and righteously by leading his family righteously. Right? David is going to, to, to taste the difficulties of this inaction and this insistence on holiness David reigned in Hebron from the age of 30 to 37, so about seven years. He then went to Jerusalem for, a, for a, approximately 11 years, where he reigned from, from the age of 38 to 40, around the age of 49, before his sin. At the, around the age of 49, he sins with Bathsheba, and then, or against Bathsheba and Uriah, and then he brings all kinds of things that happen. Mephibosheth comes to David at the, around year, uh, his 50th year, so it had been his 20th reign, around Year 31, Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. In year 33 of David's reign, so David is about 63 by this time, Absalom kills Amnon. Absalom is in exile from, from the year 33 to 35, so around 63 to 65 years old. Absalom returns to Jerusalem in David's 36th year, so around David's 66th birthday. Absalom is, quote-unquote, reconciled to David when David was around 68, so around 38 years. And then in year 40, David's 70th birthday, 70th year, 40th year of reign, we have Absalom's conspiracy, Sheba's conspiracy, and Adonijah's conspiracy. His last year is filled with chaos because it seems that David refused to act in accordance with God's righteousness and God's righteous law. David, not only he repented, but he, he repented of his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and a sin against God. But David's repentance never led him to enforce righteousness and holiness in his own household. And as a result, we'll see the rise of an antichrist, of an anti-king here. We see the rise of an anti-king here in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And so let me show you how this anti-king, this, this antichrist of sorts, rules or, or how he comes about, how he comes about here. And then we'll make some application. So we have the, we have the rise of the anti-king, the, an antichrist of sorts. And he does this in verses 1 through 6 of 2 Samuel chapter 15. He, we see him subverting the king's authority. We see him subverting authority, subverting authority. Now, how does he do this? Well, I think he does this in a couple different ways. As you look at the text, I think you see this done in a couple different ways. First, he makes himself look impressive, right? Because what does he do? He says, I've got a great idea. I know what I'll do. I want to be king. So how do I become king? Well, I need to act like king, a king. So I know what I'll do. I'll get me some chariots. And then after I get me some chariots, I need horses. I'll get me some horses, and those horses will pull those chariots. And so I need some men, so I'll get me, some, I'll get me about 50 men. And then I'll get me some more men, and I will make myself, I'll set myself up in the, in the entryway. And that's what he does. He makes himself look impressive. And he looks for opportunities, for cracks in the foundation, in order for him to subvert David's rule and David's reign, for him to insist, oh, hey, guess what, guys? I am the better alternative to the king. I am the better alternative. After all, 
My father is weak, he is old, and he is indecisive at this point. So I am young and charismatic, and I, you, and I, have, I am able to do what my father refuses to do. And so he looks for opportunities, and that's what the text says here in verse 2. He rose up early. He rose up first thing in the morning to get to the gate before anybody was there with his impressiveness, with his regalia and his chariots and his horses and his men. And people are wowed because he's, as the text has already told us, he's a beautiful man. His family is a beautiful family. And who doesn't love a beautiful politician, right? And so this guy has set himself up for looking for opportunities to gain, authority, to gain followers and authority. And he does this ever so slightly. He doesn't directly come out and say, David is a tyrant, he's an evil king, blah, 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 blah. Right? He doesn't do that. What does he do? Well, he begins very slowly saying things like, you know what? Guy who's come from the outer tribes of Israel, you're right. Your claim is ripe. But my father is so busy and he is listening to, doing what he should have done and in, in, in listening to other cases, but he is so busy. And you know what? In his busyness, he hasn't even uh, given a man to watch over your case. You, you're going to have to wait a long time. But you know what? If you made me king, if I were king, oh, how I would watch over my people. How I would make sure that my people were taken care of. How my people were loved. How my people would have people to listen to their cases and judges to do what's good and right. And he criticizes the king. Doesn't, doesn't, again, doesn't call him a tyrant, but he says he's just really busy. And he really, in his busyness, hasn't done anything He's not really giving you opportunities that you need. And then he says in verse 4, he anoints himself as the standard for justice. But if I were your king. And he steals their hearts, not just because of this, because as we'll see in just a minute, anytime someone comes to bow down before him, which was a custom of respect, right, for, for those who were in positions of authority, he literally stoops down next to them and he grits them by their arms and he picks them up. He says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. I am your equal. I am your king. I am the king that you deserve. I am the king that you need. You don't need to bow to me. I am, you are my equal. You are my equal. And so he did this. He did this. And as a result, he becomes almost like this, this godlike figure to many of, the, many of his followers. He becomes larger than, this larger-than-life figure, right? He becomes this, this gigantic figure that's like bigger than life. And everybody's like, wow. But he's consistently scheming. He's consistently scheming. And don't miss this. This isn't something Absalom has just done in a vacuum. Absalom has spent 10 years planning this. 10 years planning the scheme, scheming and, and consistently trying to achieve this desired result over God's king. And so he subverts the authority, first and foremost, by, by trying to, to look at look more impressive than he is, and he schemes consistently, and he does achieve the desired results because what, is this, what does the text say to us here? In verse 6, and in this manner, Absalom 
Uh, and on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to, to the king for judgment. And listen to what it says here. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their hearts. Now, I know in our context today, you know, we'd say, well, you know, well, he stole my heart, you know, if you're a woman, or she stole my heart. And that's a good thing. But in this context, that's not the idea here, right? The idea here is like a thief coming and stealing the hearts of the people, like a thief coming in and, and subverting and stealing the hearts of the people. It's not a good thing. And second of all, he then usurps the throne. Now, how does he usurp the throne? Well, again, he has spent 10 years planning this, right? And he has figured out that he knows the best plan to do this, how to do this. And so what does he do? Well, in verses 7 through 9, he uses the cloak of spirituality. He really does. He uses this great cloak of spirituality to disguise his selfish ambition. And we have to be careful with this because if we're not careful, we also can disguise our selfish ambition as well, let's be honest, as, as spirituality. We can disguise our selfish ambitions as spiritual commitment. And we have to be careful with this. Absalom was not careful with this, and so he sets himself up as the anti-king, as an antichrist of sorts, by using this cloak of spiritual commitment to disguise his selfish ambition. But then he does something else, <clears throat> and he's done it before, but on a much smaller scale. You remember when, Ab when Absalom kills Amnon? You remember what he does? He gets a group of men to go with him who are, who are his bodyguards and his, his, his most trusted officials, and then he invites the king and all the king's sons to a feast. Uh, the king says, no, I'm not going to go, but all the other sons go, and at the feast, what does Absalom say to his men? Listen, I'm going to tell you to do something, and you're going to have to trust me because it's going to fall on me. It's not going to fall on you, I promise. And he says, but you need to do what I say to do. And when they say, well, what is it? He says, I want you, when I give the word, to rise up and kill my brother Amnon. Well, Dave, or Absalom is simply employing this on a much greater scale, right? Absalom is simply do, taking what he employed on a much smaller scale. He says, hey, that worked. Now let's take it on a much larger scale. Oh, this is going to work. And it does. He uses the cloak of spiritual commitment to disguise his selfish ambition. And he instructs these key insurgents to, to, to time the coup that is just, just right, that it will fall into place. And he, he leads astray, as a result, he leads astray the innocent. Now, when the text says, right, that there were, there were a group of people that went with him, they didn't know his plan. And so what he does is he, he combines two groups of people. He combines the first group of people, which are the insurgents that full well know what's going on, and the innocent, because he wants to, again, give the impression, hey, I have a great following. Whether or not it's right, I mean, that's what he's giving, is what he's saying. Listen, I have a great following. You better fear me, David, my father, because I have stolen the hearts of the people. And so he recruits, even recruits key advisors. He recruits Ahithophel. By the way, I'm not going to preach a specific sermon on Ahithophel, but let me say Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba, and the, uh, he, was, uh, he knew Uriah. Uh, he was one Ahithophel along with Uriah, and Bathsheba's father were all mighty men of David. And they all knew each other. They had all, they had all fought together. They knew each other. And Ahithophel at this point serves as a very bad lesson of bitterness 
Ahithophel's bitterness at David, it's apparently, and the text doesn't say this exclusively, right? So it's not something, but I think it is definitely a good and right implication of the text. Ahithophel joins this rebellion because he has seen David basically get away with what he did. And instead of leaving justice to God, Ahithophel rises up with the other insurgents and says, I'm going to make you pay, David. I'm going to make you pay. But then there comes terrifying news, isn't there? And so that's the third reality is Absalom and his rebellion causes his own father, the king, to be shamed. How does he shame him? Well, he sends him into exile. That's what he says, right? There's terrifying news in verse 13 that comes. They are exiled. So David the king is literally exiled from the city of God. David the king, God's anointed, is sitting in the city of God. Sitting there upon his throne rightly. Absalom in his rebellion comes. David in fear gathers all of his people up. And don't miss this. The king is exiled from the city of God. But in the midst of all of this, God gives blessing to David even in the midst of his shame because there's loyal followers here. There are loyal servants who remain loyal to him. As we'll see, we have, we have, lots, of different, we have lots of different men who remain loyal to him. Uh, the Gittites, and we have, uh, um, we have uh, uh, Hushai, and Ittai, and we have Zadok, and, and, and uh, the Levites. And by the way, isn't it amazing that the Levites and the priests follow David? Right? They don't follow Absalom, they follow David. And there's this, there is this preparation then for fulfilled judgment, because why? Well, listen, this happens exactly how God prophesied it to happen. You say, well, what do you mean? Nathan prophesied of this exact thing happening. It happens many years later, but it does happen. Nathan the prophet said that there were, you did this quietly. You did this under the cover of darkness. You committed sin and murder under the cover of darkness. I'm going to do this to you openly. And that's exactly what is happening. Toward the end of David's reign, God gives David over to his own son, uh, so to speak, and causes them to run and flee. And <clears throat> these foreigners, and, and don't miss this, don't miss this. You have who? You have Gentiles and the priests who remain faithful. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Now, I think there's some application there that we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. But it's amazing. But these, these foreigners to David, these foreigners to the nation of Israel, these, these, these God-fearers, these Gentile God-fearers have come to David. And they're following David. David's own son, the crowned prince, the next to follow David in line, seeks to usurp his authority. And I think we have here, there is an insight that we do get. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, flip over to me, with me to Psalm chapter 3, and I think you'll see the, the, because Psalm 3 was written during this time, and you'll hear David, and everything David is thinking at this point. Psalm chapter 3. Lord, how they increased that trouble me. 
Many are they that rise against me. Many there are which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and I heard, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I laid down and slept. I, wake, I awoke, from the Lord, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Rise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten or struck all my enemies upon the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. David is writing this while he's running. David's confidence is in the Lord. David's confidence is in the Lord. And in all of this leads us, not only the shame of exile, but it also leads us to, to, the, fifth, to, the, to the fourth way that I think uh, this has all come about, which is God is using this to lead David to trust him, even in the midst of these great trials. David has really faced no real trials other than the death of his infant son or his young son because of his sin with Bathsheba. But now David is tasting fully of the hardships and the trials that God has brought upon him for his sin. And yet in the midst of all this, God isn't just beating on David to say, how dare you, you're a no good, dirty, rotten scumbag, right? He's not doing that. What he is saying is, David, I'm going to teach you to trust me. Even in the midst of trials and tribulations, of troubles, of struggles. And we see that in verses 19 through 37, don't we? We see faithful friends that are given to us in times of hardship. And friends, let me tell you this. Let me, let me say this, brothers and sisters. Don't ever neglect the grace of friendship, godly friends, that God gives you in the midst of trials and tribulations. In the midst of trials and tribulations and troubles and, 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 and discouragement, allow your godly friends to comfort you in the midst of these trials and troubles and tribulations because God has placed them there sovereignly to, to encourage you and to bless you. And by the way, if you are a friend, don't be like Job's friends. Right? Don't don't do that. Don't be like that. You don't. We don't need Job's friends. Right? Be godly men. Be godly women who weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and love and and simply bear the burden with those who are in need. God has given us godly friends, godly brothers and sisters in Christ. Godly brothers and sisters in Christ to bear our burdens together. You don't have to struggle in silence. You don't have to struggle where you are all alone. I don't care how much Satan says you're alone and everybody has forsaken you. It is not true. It's not true. You are not alone. God is with you and God has in his grace given you godly men and women in the local church and friendships outside of the local church to help you in the midst of this to bear your hardships and struggles. God gave that to David. But notice something here. In the midst of all of this, there is, there is an inkling of hope. You say, well, what do you, what do you mean? Well, Zadok and Abiathar, or Abiathar, however you pronounce it, right, brings the, they, they come carrying the ark of God to David. And there's a, there's, a gleam, there's a gleam of hope in all of this. Because David says to them, no, now take it back. Which, in, in some sense, you've got you to feel bad for them, right? They're like, here they are carrying this big old, ark right and it weighs quite a bit and they're like coming out of the temple with it and the Levites are with them and they're carrying it out and they get there and they say okay we're here we're going with you and David says mm, just take it back right so they got to climb back up the temple but anyway so I, I would say that in some sense you got to feel bad for them but on the same sense we understand what David is doing unlike unlike the nation of Israel in the time of Samuel's young life 
and Eli's and his sons overseeing the nation of Israel who used the ark like a lucky charm, right? It's like a rabbit's foot. It's like, well, you know, if we bring the ark with us, we can't lose. And then the Philistines slaughter them and they steal the ark and all of that is results. David says, no, no, it's not a good luck charm. It stays where it is in the tabernacle. And if the Lord delights in me, I will return to see it. But there in all of this then, in the trusting of these trials, there is a graciousness. Because notice this. Notice that there is a weeping king going up the Mount of Olives. Don't miss this. In this moment, David served as a type of Christ. Where did Christ weep? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Where does David weep? In the Mount of Olives. David is a type of Christ at this moment, serving as the weeping king, the king in exile. Christ, our great high king, was in exile, who, had ex- who was exiled by God himself for our sins, tasted the wrath of God for our sins. The great high king, David's greater son, tasted of exile from, <clears throat> from God, hated by, hated by man and and. and God turning his face away from his son. Jesus himself was rejected. David at this point points us to his greater son who was to come. And there's a wise decision in all of this because it is amazing because God's providence comes comes into clarity. And then I want to get to some, some things of how this points us to Christ and then make some application and we're done. How does David do all of this? Well, let me say this. There's some, there is some providence because if you notice at the end of the chapter, in chapter 15, what does it say? It just says that it just so happened that Hushai, as David says, hey God, would you please stop Ahithophel, right? Because he's heard that Ahithophel has, has been part of the, 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 the rebellion and he says, God, would you please thwart this? And then it says, the text says, and it just so happened that Hushai, the archite, comes out of nowhere and he's got his clothes rent and his, and his uh, uh, soil on his head, dirt on his head, and David says, God has answered my prayer. Hey, who shall I go back and thwart Ahithophel's counsel? And that's exactly what God has planned. Even before David prays, it's amazing that God has already, in his providence, made the preparations for the players. So how does all this point us to Christ? Well, let me show you a couple different ways. First, Jesus, the greater son of David, the son of God, and the son of man, was rejected by his own people as David was. Jesus, the greater son of David, like his Great, 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 great father wept on the Mount of Olives for very different reasons. David for exile, Christ for the uh, unwillingly, but Christ willingly accepting God's plan, the father's plan. Jesus, the greater son of David, had some very unlikely followers. Jesus, the greater son of David, sought, though, as the great shepherd to protect his people as David did. That's why David leaves Jerusalem. Jesus, the greater son of David, like David, was betrayed by a false friend. Jesus, the greater son of David, like David, did not take revenge upon those who reviled him, but remained silent and entrusted himself into the Father. Unlike David, Jesus was humiliated not for our sin, though, or not for his sin, but for our sin. For our sin, Christ was humiliated so that all who would repent and turn to Christ would be saved. All who would look to Christ in faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, would be redeemed by, God's, by the blood of Christ and through, the, through faith alone in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. 
Jesus, like David, was brought back again to glory after humiliation because the Lord delighted in him. And I will say this, I will say that there's coming a day in which Jesus will descend and Jesus will come and, that, and, and he will judge the nations. And like, and like, that false, like the false Christs who arise even in our day, these, false anti, these antichrists who give rise and call themselves by the name of, of Jesus, Jesus himself will dispatch his enemies without hesitation on the day of wrath and judgment. So all of this is great, right? So how do we apply this? Well, let me show you. I think there are five ways we apply this. One, my friends, let me, let me say this to you. God is merciful even in the midst of trials and troubles. God is merciful even in the midst of trials and troubles. So look to him and trust him. John Knox, that thundering Scot, said this, We know the church at all times be under the cross, and asking for temporal things, and especially deliverance from trouble. Let us offer to God obedience. If it shall please him in his goodness that we are not exercised from grief, let us patiently abide it. We see this in David, who then desirous to be restored to his kingdom when he was exiled by his own son, offered to God obedience, saying, If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if, but he says, but if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Let us trust the Lord in the midst of trials and troubles and struggles and tribulations. But I would also say this, let us examine our hearts carefully, that, we, that there be no rebelliousness against God in our hearts. As, as, the, as the writer of Hebrews says, you know, that we should not be like the children of Israel who in that day of provocation tested and put God to the test and they tasted of his wrath and his judgment. We who are in Christ are not like them. We are called to obedience and faithfulness to Christ. So let us look to Christ, to love Christ, to serve Christ. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, be careful of the bitterness of Ahithophel. When it seems as if the unrighteous and the wicked are getting away with their sinfulness and their wickedness, know that God says, I will repay and let our confidence be in Christ and his final judgment. And let me say this to you. Which king, what king are you following? morning are you following the true king jesus christ the son of god who lived a perfect life who was both god and man clothed in human flesh born of a virgin lived a perfect life died a sinner's death in our place standing condemned do you follow this king do you follow the king who is the rightful king the rightful the rightful king who is the king of kings and the lord of lords are you like so many in absalom's day following the false king the anti-king, the anti-Christ of sorts, who tells you what you want to hear. You see, the true king calls you to turn from your sin and turn to him in faith alone. The false king tells you, if it feels good, it's okay. Let us know Christ. Let us cling to Christ. And let us, let us seek grace in our times of trouble and delight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in the word. We thank you for your grace and mercy that you've given us in Christ. Help us now, we pray. As we have examined the text and seen how the anti-king has arose in Absalom, ultimately we will see his downfall as you will ultimately one day bring every nation and king before you and you will declare your utter victory. 
So God, may our hearts be for and longing be for Christ. Let us look to Christ and love Christ and serve Christ. And for those who may not know Christ this morning, may they flee to Christ this morning, feel the weight of their sin, and know that Jesus alone is the good and rightful King and flee to him in faith, we pray in Jesus' name.